All right. I am here with Stefan Kipfer, professor at the uh, Faculty of Environmental Studies at York University. My colleague Stefan and I are going to talk about Fanon, France Fanon, the wretched of the earth, uh, black skin, white masks, because um, in keeping with my uh, wanting to present just like some, you know, fundamental characters and readings um, about leftism. So, Stefan, thank you for joining me, despite the banging going on in the background. Well, thanks for having me, uh, Justin. It's a pleasure. I wanted to ask you because I know you've been like you've gone to Martinique and you've uh, you've just been like studying Fanon's writing with a real intensity um, over the past few years. So, what brought you to wanting to to do that like really intensive study of Fanon's work over the past little while? Yes. I mean, I started uh, reading Fano in two abouts in the 90s. So in the early oh, 90s, okay. when I uh, was in grad school, um, and then in the early part of my grad school, and then in the late 90s, early 2000s, when I was uh, writing my dissertation, which also includes um, um, much about about funnel. So why? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I have I had a ha- I've had a habit of dealing with important questions um, by having a close look at major thinkers. Yeah, yeah, how, I, I kind of you know, before Fanon, ha- I know you had a lot of writing on uh, Henri Lefebvre, which was another. Like you yeah, it's on LFF, Gramsci, and a bunch of other people, and so I felt this a good way to kind of sort out some some crucial issues. Not, you know, because major thinkers are important in their own right, but one of the interesting things about them is you can learn a great deal about the world more broadly by understanding the way in which these thinkers have been taken up by others in different contexts and you know from different vantage points and so to sort of sort this out is a good way to kind of clarify a whole bunch of things about theory about politics about history and so on so that's sort of what i did with funnel because of course in the 90s in you know in toronto uh there was uh, an enormous amount of debate about racism and and imperialism and and the so-called identity politics and the relationship between Marxism and postmodernism and all the rest of it. And so Fanon's work and debates about Fanon are quite useful in kind of uh, sorting some of these issues out. Here's my reading of Fanon. And you can we can we can start with my reading of it and then we can pick that apart and see where I what I missed and what I uh, got. So for me, uh, there's two things. One is the importance of resistance uh, in recovering from the dehumanization of colonialism. So he talks about like how the how decolonize how colonialism basically dehumanizes um, its victims, the colonized, and then he talks about how when you resist, you can kind of recover your humanity. And then the other thing for me is, um, I think it's in the Wretched of the Earth. It's like the second half of the Wretched of the Earth is like the limitations of um, post-colonial elites in in terms of how, you know, they turn out to dis- really disappoint um, the the oppressed and the colonized as they take over for the for the colonial elite and they end up not really 
truly uh, offering liberation. Mm-hmm. So. Right. Yes. Yeah, of course, you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the, the Wretched of the Earth and Black Skin, White Mask are kind of the big bookends of Fanon's work, and I think it, it's impossible to deal with him without those two monographs. Um, it is true that they do indeed deal with what you just said, which is with you know, racism as, an, as a form of alienation, a form of dehumanization, and uh, in the first instance, and then they deal with Fanon's sort of take on the dynamics of decolonial struggle or anti-colonial struggle. Uh, I think maybe just add one thing is that uh, what's interesting is that even though those two books, Black, Black Skin, White, um, White Masks and, and The Wretch of the Earth, even though they're very different kinds of books, um, they have uh, lots in common. And one of the things that they do have in common is um, Fanon's sort of overarching uh, interest in um, in struggle, you know, as you say, resistance and struggle as the key motor through which people liberate themselves, may be able to liberate themselves both in their daily lives, um, you know, in the street, in terms of how they relate to each other, um, as well as, you know, at the level of world politics. Um, and so even though The Wretched of the Earth you know, is a is a very different book than than Black Skin White Mask because it deals with with politics, with the state, with the relationship between different social classes. Um, it, it continues to be concerned about you know everyday life being the the fundamental benchmark, um, the fundamental kind of reference point when we think about whether decolonization is successful, right? Uh, in other words, if 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 anti-colonial struggle doesn't lead to a transformation of people's everyday lives, it 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 won't be a success. It'll be something else. It'll be, you know, neo-colonialism or what what he suggested, um, you know, in, with reference to Africa and Algeria. You know, it, it it might it might end up being a false form of decolonization. Most people, including me, will read those two books and stop. But you've actually found things he used to write for the Mujahid, right? Right. So I mean, yes. So next next to those two books, we have you know we've had for a long time in English two other books that are collections uh, mostly of political writing. Uh, one of them is called Toward the African Revolution, which originally was published in French in 1964. And the other one is called a dying, is translated as A Dying Colonialism, which came out in French in 1959. And, um, you know, more recently in 2015, um, uh, in French, um, a new set of texts or a, a, not new, but a, a, another set of funnel texts were published in French, and that collection has come out in English under the title of Alienation and Freedom uh, two years ago. And so, yes, I think these are all very important texts. And m- let me just perhaps highlight a couple um, um, from the already available texts, uh, you know, Toward the African Revolution and a Dying Colonialism. Um, in that second volume called The Dying Colonialism, there are two texts which I found particularly 
Central. Um, they're called Algeria Unveiled and the Algerian Family. And these are crucial texts, first of all, because they are you know, the most important texts when you want to think about what Fanon may have to um, give to feminist traditions. Um, because those two texts uh, clearly say that um, we cannot understand colonialism and we cannot understand dynamics of decolonization without paying close attention to gender um, gender relationships. And uh, he says in both of those texts that, you know, to some extent, Colonialism is produces a kind of a meeting point between two kinds of patriarchies, you know, the patriarchies of the of the empires, and the patriarchies in those colonial societies that were patriarchal. Not all of them were, of course, but but some certainly have been. And so, in that light, what Fano is suggesting in those texts is that decolonization really is a kind of a double transformation. It is, of course, a radical challenge to um, imperialism, colonial imperialism specifically, but it's also decolonization is also a transformation of colonized societies, or at least those aspects of colonized societies that that uh, are also embedded in hierarchies and, and inequalities and forms of, of domination, some of which predate colonialism and, and some of which were created or reinforced by colonial rule. Um, now, so that's one thing, sort of the gender dynamics. There's been big debates about, you know, among feminists about what to do with Fano, and I think these texts are the most promising. Um, in those same texts, particularly Algeria Unveiled, and this is particularly important to me because I'm interested in urban questions and spatial questions, you also have this sense that, that Fanon understands very well the sort of the, the spatial dynamics of colonialism, and he also understands that decolonization must be also about transforming the geographies. Um, uh, left by uh, colonial histories, so that colonialism really is, to some extent, or decolonization is a is also a struggle about appropriating and transforming uh, space. Uh, you know, transforming urban space, transforming the relationship between public and private space, transforming the relationship between you know the countryside and cities, and all of that is very central to to funnel. Uh, when I first encountered him, I actually thought he was, Al- I just assumed he was Algerian. I didn't really understand that he was from Martinique and, and uh, you know, because he, he's always writing about Algeria. And it's, uh, it's interesting because like Martinique uh, was a French colony for like 200 years before Algeria became a French colony. And the history of the Caribbean is so different in terms of how they became colonies and the kinds of processes of you know genocide and slavery that that turned Martinique into uh, what it what it was then and what it is I guess now and compared to Algeria which was invaded in 1830 and there was all this kind of specifically 19th century financial wizardry right <laughs> that turned Algeria into a colony but I, I wonder like it, it, what did you find out about like uh, Fanon's time in Martinique compared to 
Algeria and what kinds of insights he had because he came from that context to another. Yeah, I mean, this is this is really one of the most interesting things about Fanon's work is that, you know, I mean, politically, right, I mean, it's quite clear that his work belongs in that sort of, um, uh, you know, tricontinental revolutionary context that was already on its way during his lifetime, uh, even before the tricontinental uh, grouping were or- groupings were organized in the 1960s. And the thing about Fanon's uh, work is that it's it is itself um, you know transcontinental, right? In terms of where it comes from, and a lot of not everybody has sort of you know some people have you know been a bit um, you know concerned about well how is it possible for this black man from Martinique to become a revolutionary figure in North Africa? Like something is strange there, some people thought, and particularly those people who think that one can't travel politically across various divides. And yet Fanon <laughs> yeah. did, did exactly that, right? I mean, but that's um, I guess that's where you you know you you were mentioned at the beginning that it's it's useful to think through some of the, I guess, dogmas of uh, liberal, more liberal identity politics, right? Which is like you can only speak from that in you know extremely. A specific set of groups that you have been assigned essentially by <laughs> imperialism, more or yeah, less. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, this is one of the things about Fanon. So, I mean, to go back to Martinique, as you, you specifically suggested, is I mean, I, I have you know, I should say I've, I've gone on on a number of sort of uh, treks to uh, visit you know important spaces in Fanon's work, including in France and in Tunisia and Algeria, but. But yes, I've been to Martinique more recently, a couple of years ago, uh, for various reasons, not just because of Fanon. But so yes, the Martinique connection, of course, is central. And, uh, you know, Martinique being a classic sugar slave island, uh, French since the early 17th century. And um, Fanon was born into a mulatto family, which you know, would have put him in a good position to become part of the ruling circles on Martinique because after the abolition of slavery in 1848, um, fairly quickly the political class in Martinique became uh, strongly influenced and then dominated by mixed-race middle-class Martinicans, um, such as the, you know, families that uh, families of school teachers and administrators and so on, which which were also um, the social milieus within Fano himself was um, um, uh, uh, part of. And so Fano uh, was on his way, in a sense, to become um, part of social circles in the French Empire that were, of course, um, dehumanized and dominated, but also uh, uh, inserted into a sort of a privileged privilege position. It was quite common for for middle class people from the Caribbean to, uh, uh, you know, become um, uh, administrators in other parts of the French Empire. And so it was also common in that context for people in his of his background to think of themselves to be more European or more French than the white French themselves. 
And yeah, so yeah. Uh, Fano's first sort of engagement, you know, with, with political realities came having to deal with the fact that, uh, you know, uh, he could never really be French, despite the fact that he grew up thinking that he was more French than the French themselves. And um, uh, he experienced this first during the not the, the fascist occupation of 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 the island during the second world war and then in the french army uh, the french liberation army uh, which he joined in order to liberate france from the nazis and just as many other colonials uh, experienced that sort of discrepancy between having you know the the colonial uh, universal aspirations from the colonizers, but then meeting the reality of deep and violent racism, uh, landing in 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 the the armies of the empire, as it were, and um, so that's sort of his starting point. And and of course, he then could have gone the route of um, negritude, of you know the particular intellectual current defined by Aimé Césaire which he did join for a while, but also realized that um, that the black radical tradition was only one element in his own um, um, thinking. And, and I think this is came, partly came, came in France itself because when he, was, when he became a psychiatrist, um, learned how to be a psychiatrist in the 40s and then practiced, practiced psychiatry in a critical fashion in the 1950s, both in France and Algeria, he, of course, came across a lot of North, North Africans and was dealing at a very intimate level with you know, the mental illnesses created by French colonialism and was very quickly you know, put in a position of having to think about multiple racisms uh, generated by French French imperialism and French colonialism, and so for him, I think it was fairly clear, fairly early, that one needed to think about resisting um, colonialism in a in an internationalist way, uh, from multiple vantage points, uh, not just one vantage point in in uh, in the context of the French Empire. I wanted to kind of make a pitch to listeners, like if you are. Um you know, anti-imperialist or, or curious about leftism. Um, I, I think you need to read Fanon, but I, I, I wonder what you would say, Stefan, like how, what, what, did, what did you, what did, what do you think, how would you pitch it? Like, how would you say like you, what do you need that Fanon can get you that you really can't get <laughs> without Fanon? Yeah, there's, there's about four things. I mean, let, let me perhaps backtrack a bit. I mean, I get this question every once in a while. You know, why, why does one need to read Fanon? Why, and, and particularly because I'm, you know, I'm a white guy from, from you know, Western Europe. Mm, yeah, with the, with the kind for, of politics that we right? have now, that's the question you always have to answer, right? Like, what, by what yeah, right I mean, do you read Fanon, sir? Exactly, right? So why <laughs> do white people, I mean, why do people generally, but why do white people, why do, why do they need to read Fanon? Um, so, so, I mean, my questions to this, uh, my answers to these questions are kind of twofold. One, uh, you know, they're general, general responses. Um, most basically, the first one is simply, simply that, well, I mean, if you're interested in, you know, as you say, the empire, if you're interested in radical politics, I mean, how could you not read Fanon? Because Fanon's work is among, I would say, the top five 
most important you know revolutionary work in the 20th century so there's really no way around him i mean you you don't really have a choice and and i think for a number of very good reasons first as as we started out with you know fano is one of the few people who really is most ambitious in wanting to think revolution in two ways in at the level of the state and world politics, but also at the level of everyday life, right? And he says, well, ultimately, revolution has to be about both. It cannot be just one. And that is difficult. And it's fair to say that I don't think we've had a revolution in, in the modern period that managed to pull this off. But he says we need to do that. We need to be ambitious in that way, because the if we don't think of revolution and the revolutionary success in terms of transforming people's everyday lives in an emancipatory way, what what's the point, right? Um, the can second I just, thing, let me just jump. Yeah. Can I just jump in because yeah. I was I read Che Guevara's Congo Diary, which was only published actually in two thousand, but it was he was in the Congo. Well, I guess a little bit after he was in there in nineteen sixty four. Right. That was really striking to me. I didn't actually appreciate how much Che Guevara thought about that too. Like everything that he thinks about is how can we transform the people's way, like the, the specifically he was like very practically, uh, we have to transform the way these fighting men and women uh, think. Like we have to transform the way they, like their qualities, like what mm-hmm. the qualities are of a good guerrilla the qualities are of a good fighter and that was his he was very disappointed that they were unable to accomplish that in congo but his his analysis of it was always in terms of like the human qualities of the revolutionary so i guess you know fanon is all about that too yes and of course fanon is not the only one but i i I would i would want to suggest that you know he and a number of other people including gramsci for example were and a number of revolutionary feminists were, you know, have been the, the most ambitious in terms of setting out that agenda. Um, and I think the other thing which is interesting, and this is the second thing about, about, about Fanon, is that, you know, not all revolutionaries are equally um, nuanced when it comes to the importance of politics as an art of transformation. Right? There's revolutionary traditions which are kind of culturalist in a certain sense or then the revolutionary traditions that are you know you know more on the sort of economic economic determinist side of things and for Fano it was clear particularly in the last five years of his life that that the struggle itself that you know political engagement political organizing leadership is not just a secondary thing it is it is a major uh, avenue through which people's lives change in the process of uh, of political tra- in in the process of political struggle, and um, and that also means that politics is a key agent moving people from where they are at the beginning of a struggle to where they could be in the years after a successful political and social revolution, right? So I think that that is the second thing that you get from 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 Fano's political writings in particular. So, um, and the f- third thing, which is closely related, gets gets us back to the question of internationalism, is that Fano is not a nationalist. 
Um, so for him, the national question is very important, but national liberation from Fanon is not about uh, defending a pre-existing nation. And it couldn't have been because the nations that were so liberated did not exist as such in a colonial context. And so for Fanon, the national question is a kind of a way of thinking of liberating colonial subjects by creating something new, by creating new kinds of relationships, by transforming people's relationships, by transforming the relationship between city and countryside, by transforming the relationship between organizers and regular people, by transforming the relationship between the peasants and the workers and the shantytown dwellers in colonial spaces, right? And so the, the, the national becomes a kind of a, a conduit to think about that transformation. And it is never an end in itself, right? The national question then becomes part of a global vision of transforming the, the world as a whole. And, and in that sense, of course, Fanon's you know, conception of the national is classic, classically internationalist. It is an element in a broader dynamic of transformation that, uh, according to his views, would put the former colonized world uh, in the driver's seat with respect to transforming uh, the planet as a whole. So these are kind of the basic things. And, and then the question is, well, yes, what about, you know, what about, what about, what about people in the empire? What about people in Canada? And what, what about people in, you know, the places that I grew up um, before coming here? What about the white people in those spaces? What, what about them? What, what about, what does, does Fano have anything to say to them, even though he didn't write for them specifically? Um, and I think the interesting thing uh, on this front is that one gets this sense from Fano's writing is that you know, a successful tricontinental revolution has some side effects, could have some side effects, even for the colonizers. Um, he essentially suggests that such a revolution would create a situation where new kinds of relationships are possible, um, uh, even in the imperial core. And he essentially suggests that, um, you know, that, that, to be in the heart of empire is, of course, a privilege, as, as we now call it, right, um, in the current political culture in a place like Toronto. But it, it is an alienating privilege, right? It's a privilege that also dehumanizes uh, the people who are so privileged. Um, to be, you know, on the, on, on the dominant side of, of a colonial relation or to be on the dominant side in, in, in an imperial world, is also to, to diminish, in a sense, the human, the human potentials and capacities of the people who benefit um, from that relationship. Uh, so white workers, for example, in, in Canada or in, in, in Europe. And there's a sense in which uh, you know, the ultimate side effect of a tricontinental revolution is also to make it possible for colonizers to liberate themselves, as it were, from um, uh, their own participation in, in brutalizing others and ultimately brutalizing themselves in the process. Right. So I think that's what I would say, that last thing I would say uh, to, to those 
people who ask me why why should white people read funnel specifically james baldwin said that right he said something like you know i'm i'm a man i'm not a negro if you need me to be a negro that's you know that's your problem right um so that, yeah, I mean, I think. Well, I, I mean, I think I would. I would say that it, you know, there's. Of course, it's perfectly correct to say that funnel does belong in what people have called the black radical tradition, right? So there yeah. is, there is, uh, but that's not the only thing he's part of. But that, that he is part of that. Um, I'm saying he's part of our global, you know, patrimony of, you know, in, in, intelligence that right. we should all be able to draw on. Yes. Yes, you know, yes. And I think you're right. I mean, your point is very well taken, and I think it, it takes us back to what, what we talked about earlier. Um, you know, Lewis Gordon, who you know is a prof in the United States, who's one of the major uh, funnel scholars, sort of next to Otto Sekioto, who was my professor here at York, who, who for me is sort of the main uh, you know, uh, interpreter of funnel. But Gordon also suggested, uh, including in his... Uh, recent book um, called What Funnel Said, which is a very nice text for people who want to want to access some of these debates. He starts the book by sort of warning us of biographical reductionism, saying that, well, you know, one of the things about anti-Black racism is that it reduces Black people to their experience. Yes, perfect, right? yeah. And I was just thinking like Socrates, like you wouldn't say Socrates or Plato were Greek writers. You know what I mean? Like they were, well, they yeah, were, Socrates exactly. didn't write anything. He's <laughs> it, it, exactly right, right? So the, yeah. you're exactly right. So so he says, look, if we, that cannot be our end point. To write an intellectual biogra- biography about somebody like Fanon cannot be just about the fact that he's from Martinique. Um, it, it has to be about what he said. It has to be about the ideas and the engagements that he that he that he made in his life, uh, without suggesting that these engagements are simply a function of his, you know, personal um, biography of his, um, you know, psychological sort of tendencies. And it's that interpret those interpretations that have had a habit of saying, well. Funnel's, you know, identification with the FLN and the Algerian liberation f- struggle was just a, a, a case of false identification. How could he do this? He was a black man. How could he possibly become Algerian? It's it, that's that doesn't happen, right? And uh, so, I mean, Gordon reacts to this way of kind of putting people in their place like this instead of paying attention to what they actually said and what they actually did. I think of that as almost like an Anglo imperial way of thinking. Like to, because even the, the way that the French um, French imperialism worked was a little bit different. Like it was all the idea was that Algeria and I guess Martinique were supposed to be in theory assimilated into France. Uh, you know, the English Anglo colonies were never like that really, right? Like uh, India was never going to be part of Britain. Um, Jamaica was never going to be part of Britain, except the settlers, like the settlers had some rights. But France, the theory was that, that the colonized were, were raised in was that you, if you learn the French language and, you know, learn the French ideology, then you can be French. And so, of, of course, people from the colonies would would think a little bit differently than people from Anglo colonies do or did. 
in, particularly in those con- in those contexts, less. So Algeria yeah. was part of France, and the French Caribbean was, you know, part of France proper uh, in that sense. Yeah. So it, it, yeah. it creates a bit of a different starting point for for the debate. But it also, of course, makes it important for people in those contexts to deal with sort of the falsehoods of that, you know, French universalism. There's a colonial universalism there which says that people become proper humans insofar as they become French, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, well, I read of course, the, one, have one you ever the, read? Have you ever read Mark Bloch? I was reading, uh, he's like a French, he was a member of the French Resistance. Yes. Uh, uh-huh. And he wrote, like, Strange Defeat, I think, was his, his book. But near the end of the book, he says something like, a civilized man or a Frenchman, which is the same thing. Right. <laughs> I kind of like laughed a little bit when I read that because you just, it's a real window into that mentality, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, uh, you know, the, 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 so what you're saying, of course, about English imperialism, there, there is, I mean, there, there are all sorts of similarities, right, between those cultures, but there is, it is true that it is much more commonly, it, it's much easier in an English imperial context. To you know, to insist on your particularity, right? Because the the, the the British were much better at ruling indirectly, and indeed they even influenced the French in certain moments where indirect rule became, um, you know, pr- more pronounced in the early twentieth century in Morocco, for example. And you know that for, one way in which indirect rule can be quite effective is if you don't try to assimilate culturally you just kind of magnify the perceived particularities of the colonial subjects right right and so and that, i mean that you you yeah. see that in a french context too i mean this is also a tendency in a french context but it's 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 perhaps a more submerged uh, aspect of french of french colonial traditions than that kind of civilizational assimilationist kind of of current that is much more pronounced in in the French context. Um, Can we talk about his style a little bit? Because like, if you're used to footnotes and, you know, a a specific type of scholarly writing, it's it's incredible for me to read Fanon uh, just because like every sentence is really quotable and every every sentence is like something you want to stop and think about. And also uh, at the same time, it's like, he doesn't really give you a lot of links to other writers or. Yes. I mean, the styles vary, of course. Right. So, I mean, his, the, the, the two collections that I mentioned earlier and also the, the more recent collection, which came out, you know, in English two years ago, which also includes an additional set of political writings, you know, there's this political journalism, right. Which is very accessible. Oh, okay. um, so, if if you want to access Fano that way, that's perhaps one of the easiest way to do it. I mean, he wrote for Al Mujahid, the you know, FLN newspaper, sometimes under his name, sometimes anonymously, sometimes with other people. And you know, these are straightforward cases of political journalism, often quite elegant, but not you know particularly difficult to access and not particularly yeah i don't it's i guess it's not accessibility it's like these really really big statements that i think are referring to specific historical experiences but he doesn't 
necessarily reference it. So for example, like he'll say um, in the, I'll, I just want to read you. This is the, the you know, the, se- the section where he says when the native hears a speech about Western culture, he pulls out his knife or at least makes sure it's within reach. In the, in the colonial context, the settler only ends his work by breaking in the native of breaking in the native when the latter admits loudly and intelligibly the supremacy of the white man's values. In the period of decolonization, the colonized masses mock at these very values, insult them, and vomit them up. This phenomenon is ordinarily masked because during the period of decolonization, certain colonized intellectuals have begun a dialogue with the bourgeoisie of the colonialist country. And it's like, you know, yeah, that's, that's usually true, or like I've seen that true in some cases, but it's not true in other cases. But it's like, this you know it's like a schematic he's almost like giving you a schematic like this is gonna happen now um if you're in a revolutionary process you're gonna (laughs) you know but uh right right. yeah i I don't know what do you what do you yeah so i mean this is yeah so let's talk about the 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 more complex texts right the ones um you know the, the big monographs that you started out with so they are, you know, so the question always is, yes, what is the relationship between form and content in, in works like this, which are not conventional? Um, you know, the first one, Black Skin, White Mask, is, of course, a crazy combination of styles and engagements. And it was supposed to be his dissertation. And it was rejected. And one can kind of see why. From what, I mean, from, from what university? Uh, where he was in Lyon studying psychiatry, right? So, it, okay. so he had to redo. He had to write another dissertation, which is, by the way, now translated in that edition that I mentioned from 2018. Okay. So you can read that too. It's a very, totally different thing. Um, so, of course, Black and White Mask is a dangerous text, partly because it's so explosive with respect to what it actually says about dynamics of racialization. But it's also crazy because it's systematically uh, it, it just it just throws overboard any kind of disciplinary convention, right? It's sort of a crazy combination of of autobiographical reflection with philosophical discourse, with you know detailed engagements in psychoanalytical and psychiatric debate, all in one text, right? <laughs> so some people, including Gordon, have said, "Well, this is a good." Example for how you know for, for why we need to consider Fanon to be, you know, fundamentally transdisciplinary, right? In terms of <laughs> what he's been there's doing. The, there's um, one of our favorite words. That's right. Yes, yes, that's right. And so, <laughs> so it's true, right? So, it, 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 reading that text requires an enormous amount of literacy in a whole series of of fields of debate, and uh, that's one of the things what what makes it both interesting and challenging. The, you know, back to the text that, that, that you wanted to talk about, I mean, they, 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 it's a bit, a bit of a different story. So the wretched of the earth, you know, imagine Fano is dying, right, uh, of le- leukemia, and, and he, he needs to write this book before dying, mm. right? And so this is, um, you know, it, it, that text is very different. It is a political manifesto in a sense uh, and also a kind of a, I mean, Situ, uh, Ato Sekiotu, uh, you know, my my former prof, has called it, um, you know, a dialectic, a statement uh, that sort of details a dialectic of experience, right? What what is the what is the relationship between interpersonal transformation and revolutionary struggle? 
See, I, I really and, read it, thought of it as like kind of some kind of a manual. Like you, if you're in, if you're anywhere in the decolonization process, right. you find out, <laughs> figure out where you are, and right. then Fanon's going to tell you pretty much what's going to happen next. You know? Yes, I think it is. In a certain sense, I think people have have used it that way and i think it's it's not wrong right i mean but it, it, the point is to say that one shouldn't read it as you know as a, a historiographical or social scientific text about algeria or about west africa even though these two cases are clearly present uh, in the text and are the reference points but the point is that he's writing a a, a narrative of liberation right that that becomes much bigger than the historical cases that he most what, that he was most familiar with. So the texts are about Algeria and West Africa, but they are really are about, as you say, in a certain sense, they are, you know, they give us a kind of a philosophical and political guide to the various possibilities and pitfalls of uh, a dynamic of 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 struggle of liberation. Right, and so every the thing about it is that every single part of that book, and this is you know Sato Autosecoto's tech uh, point is every single aspect of that book, the Regent of the Earth, is connected to each other. It, it every aspect of it is part of a dynamic, and so if you read that book only by reading the first part, which is all about you know the Viol- stark violence, the yeah, stark violent yeah. distinctions between the yeah. colonizer and the colonized. You don't really get the book. You have to read it till the end because yeah, he's just—he's just setting up a lot of what he's trying to, to trying to do. Exactly right, because the categories that he starts out with get transformed throughout the book, which is exactly what he thought should be happening in a, in My the course f- of a liberation struggle. <clears throat> a friend of mine gave me the first uh, book out of a four-book science fiction series, and it was like. The, it was 500 pages where you're just meeting one character after another. And I was totally frustrated. And he said, no, no, keep reading because uh, the payoff comes later, you know? Right. And so, you know, you're, you're 1,500 pages in and you've spent 500 pages getting to know all these people. So it's actually much <laughs> more interesting. Yes. But it's, yeah, you, you, don't, you don't get the point unless you go all the way through it. Um. Okay, so speaking of using it, going back to the idea of using it as an instruction manual, like I, I actually found Fanon uh, when I was kind of anti-war activist in two thousand three on uh, the Iraq War, um, the invasion of Iraq in two thousand three, uh, and uh, we, you know, there was some some story in the media about how U.S. Uh, officers were showing their troops the ba- the movie the battle of algiers yeah um and uh and then i you know so i got interested in the algeria war of liberation and then obviously you know you're you're two you're one search away from fanon when you're looking up about the algerian war of liberation so mm-hmm. is that was that your but you were in the so how yeah how did you get what was your path in the 90s i guess to finding it yeah, so, um, well, I, I found it through coursework, right, originally. So f- snippets of Fauna were offered to me in various courses that didn't 
we're not necessarily so, so it is so it is still possible to learn things in school <laughs> yes <laughs> yes yeah so that was yeah i mean that was my, my first sort of round but and and but you know when perhaps to give you another anecdote that is somewhat comparable to yours in the early 2000s you know i defended my dissertation in 2004 in it has, you know, a chapter on Funnel and a number of engagements with him. And then the question became, well, what, what I'm going to do with all of this? And so as I, you know, right after I defended the dissertation, the first thing I did is I turned one of the chapters into a, a, a an article for an academic uh, journal. And as I was doing it, uh, this debate was raging in France about... Um, about the uh, headscarf um, and the headscarf law was passed that year in 2004 that sort of prohibited schoolgirls from wearing the headscarf in, in uh, the French school system. And so, you know, that was a kind of an additional moment which sort of brought back home the explosive character of of Fanon's text called Algeria Unveiled, where he discusses exactly the dynamic of unveiling and the way in which the veil, the, spe- the veil in its specific sense, like the headscarf or the veil in, in the Islamic sense, um, can change meaning depending on how it relates to colonialism and the liberation struggle, right? So, when I, so I was recasting some of my Fanon reflections through that text in the context of the French debates that were raging at the time. Apparently, uh, pretty much every Western country after coronavirus has discovered that it's okay to cover your face. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Indeed, that it's necessary to do so. Um, Okay, so one maybe one last question. I don't know if you wanted to tackle this, but when you said the top, Fanon's the top five (laughs) on uh, colonization... Or decolonization. What what would you, what do you have your what what would your top five be? Oh, I mean, I meant top five in terms of revolutionary theory. Period. Yeah, yeah, okay. Not not, not only anti-imperial um, in quotation marks. Only, I mean, yeah, no, no, no. I mean, Fano is up there with with Lenin and and Gramsci and Luxembourg, and in my view, as well as with the main sort of African, Asian anti-colonial thinkers, right from Ho Chi Minh to yes, Cabral, Sankara, absolutely, yeah, Cabral in particular, I think is a good is a good comparison point because of his, again, his emphasis on struggle, um, in relationship to culture and economic development. So, yeah, I uh, I read I, I actually for me reading Akbal Ahmed, the Pakistani uh, revolutionary writer. Um, who who actually was in Algeria and met Fanon and apparently mm-hmm. worked at the Mujahid mm-hmm. with him. That actually helped me understand a lot of what Fanon was was talking about and what he was doing. How would you how would you elaborate? Well, on he this? he was the so he, he was talking about so he he's got an interesting story cuz he he joined um the FLN uh worked with Fanon um, and then, but he was going back and forth to the States. He was have heavily involved in the anti-Vietnam War movement, but then uh, befriended Edward Said and did um, worked with the PLO and Arafat. And so Arif, he, he became, apparently he got a reputation as like an armed struggle authority because of what he wrote about Vietnam and yeah. what he wrote about Algeria. And then 
when he went and met with Arafat in the 80s and PLO people, he said a nonviolent struggle is the most important thing you could do here, like the Mm. most strategic thing you could do here. And they thought that was really, you know, he describes how they were really surprised because they were like, I thought you were the armed struggle guy. And Mm -hmm. he was, he kind of had this analysis of why it was more strategic in that context to do uh, unarmed struggle. But then he also said, you know, you guys are misunderstanding what Fanon is saying. Fanon is saying resistance is key. It doesn't matter that much if it's violent or nonviolent. What matters is that you're fighting back somehow, that you're Mm -hmm. asserting your humanity by trying to change the political situation. Right. And that was, that was because for me, like when I read it first, I was like, okay, yeah, violence, you got to do violence, you know? And I had, I had the people that were kind of quoting him to me, I, I, I thought had a pretty superficial understanding of it anyway. Yes. So I was more dismissive of it than I should have been. And then Ekbal reading it in that, you know, reading Ekbal's kind of saying you're you're misunderstanding it um kind of ha- helped me go back to yeah, it yeah that's right yeah that's absolutely correct i mean Fano, of course obviously was not opposed to armed struggle but i think he was no, certainly he not a fetishist of physical violence um exactly. on the contrary i mean when he says that yes i mean decolonization will be violent is simply simply saying that the structural violence of colonialism cannot possibly be undone yeah. without violence in that structural sense, whether, yeah. irrespective of whether it includes armed struggle or not. That's just a basic factual observation. I mean, um, you know, from that point of view. And, and, you know, there's multiple people who've also sort of reinforced our sense of this. I mean, one of them that I would recommend uh, also is Alice Sherki, uh, mm-hmm. who um, wrote... Um, uh, biography of Fanon, which was published in in um, the early two thousands, in Eng- uh, was translated into English in the early two thousands, and she she worked with him in Blida, so outside of uh, Algiers, when Fanon was a, a psychiatric doctor there uh, before resigning, and uh, so she's very very good on that front uh, on the question of violence, um, sort of demystifying this idea that. You know, Fano was this apostle of um, of um, you know, physical violence at all costs, at all times. There's another um, angle in terms of reading it in Canada, and that is the Glenn Coltard um, right. you know, angle. Like Glenn mm-hmm. Coltard wrote Redskin, White Masks, obviously inspired by Fanon. He taught a summer course that we both uh, attended. I think you helped, you were co-instructor, you were... Um, Co-directing, the organizer yeah. of that course at that year right yeah um and so the way that uh you know if you understand canada as i think i argue you should um and Col- coltard argues you should as a as a colonizing um power over indigenous people yeah then understanding fanon as you know how do you use and understand fanon to think of decolonization in a Canadian context right. and Coltard takes it in this kind of refute so like I think of it like resistance but Coltard's big point is like refusal right like the colonial power wants you to seek recognition and um, mm-hmm. the only possible stance is refusal and I know you you know you also did this really really close reading of, of Coltard in his book so 
I don't know if you wanted to make any connection between those. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big, big fan of Coltheart's book, um, Redskin White Masks, and uh, so I, so whatever I'm going to say here is is just to be seen in that context. I, I'm, you know, in in the book that I'm um, just working on now, which is you know, it exists in French already, but it, I'm going to put it out in in English. There's there's going to be a chapter on on um uh on on um uh infrastructure politics and indigenous resistance in in canada and so i'm drawing on coltart there of course Uh, i think a lot of the debate about you know a lot of the debate between coltart and funnel which is also shifting because because there has been some debate about about coltart's take has to do with the question of tradition um, you know, so it has to do with what Fano said exactly about the relationship between um, colonized societies and liberation, between you know pre-colonial and colonial traditions that are materially there at the point uh, of liberation struggles, and and you know what to think about that. And I think there's a certain uh, one particular line. That you know stresses you know the degree to which Fano emphasizes discontinuity, right? That, again, emphasizing the role of the struggle in transforming both colonial power and colonized societies. But of course, Fano didn't suggest that you know that struggle starts from scratch. That you know there are no pre-existing um, cultural and linguistic and social elements that um, liberation struggles draw upon, right? And so that's the context within which um, uh, Coltard intervenes and says, well, you know, in a context of settler colonialism in North America, where, you know, the settlers are not a strong minority like they were in Algeria, but they are almost everybody, right? 85, 95% of the population. And these settlers are not going anywhere. They seem to be here for good for God's sake, right? So it's a bit difficult to throw them back into the sea as much as that may be good to do. It's a bit difficult politically and yeah, militarily, right? Yeah, Like you sure. and I, Justin, we'd have to be thrown back into the Atlantic or the Pacific or whatever the case may be. And that's a bit <laughs> difficult. It's a bit difficult to do. And so the question then becomes, you know, the question of survival, survival like yeah. physical survival of of indigenous populations and the you know cultural and social and linguistic survival of indigenous peoples of course is is a is 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 a a, 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 a much even bigger concern than it would have been in the context of algeria and so in that context you know the the, the question really is how do we think tradition indigenous traditions in relationship to liberation Right, and so I think Coltart and others, um, um, you know, Leon Simpson and 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 a bunch of other current uh, indigenous radicals have been thinking a great deal about how to think about tradition in a dynamic way, right? Yeah. Not in the way in which colonial culture wants us to think of it, you know, as folklore, as you know, indigenous. Yeah, because uh, those know, are all those are all right? um, imperial alibis, one way or another, right? These are right. all just ways that empire used to to justify 
taking the land. And... Yeah, exactly. And so there, you know, there's elements in Funnel's work that allows you to think about that too. So in his, in his, uh, and I think Coltart has now gone back to this with reference to to one of Funnel's texts, which is called Racism and and Culture. I think that's the translation, uh, which was, you know, which is in in that collection called Toward the African Revolution. Uh, uh, which is a speech he gave at one of the, you know, um, um, Pan African Congresses in, in in the late fifties, and you know where Fano also deals with this question, right? How do you kind of uh, transform, uh, like maintain and transform at the same time um, strands in in colonized societies and colonized cultures? You know, how do you make how do you make them active? active elements in a dynamic of struggle and i think this is sort of um you know you know how how coltart wants to think of us think of this question also all right that was a solid solid hour stefan that was uh that was good basically the length of a of a lecture <laughs> yeah that's right remote teaching <laughs> yeah.